You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. This is Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, we have specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. From the very beginning, we have been family-owned and family-run. Our tents have become the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers all over the world, and especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who demand utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, our tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. Hello, I'm Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal and host of this show. To kick off this episode, I have the privilege of announcing the winners of the 2019 Cutting Edge Grants from the American Alpine Club. The AAC has been supporting exploratory climbing for over 100 years. All three Cutting Edge Grant winners for 2019 will be trying very difficult climbs on 7,000-meter peaks in the greater ranges. Here they are. First, Sam Hennessy and a team of three other Americans will attempt the unclimbed north face of Chamla. This is a mega line up a 7,321-meter peak in the Varun section of Nepal. Chantal Astorga has won a cutting-edge grant to travel to Pakistan with Anne Gilbert Chase and attempt a new route in the Pumari Chish group, some of the most impressive peaks in the Karakoram. We spoke with Ann Gilbert a few episodes ago about her climb of the Slovak Direct on Denali with Chantel. This will be their biggest and boldest climb yet. And the third cutting-edge grant winner for 2019 is Chris Wright, who is our guest on today's show, along with Graham Zimmerman. They're teaming up with Karakoram veterans Steve Swenson and Mark Ritchie for a second try at Unclimbed Link Sar, a very complex 7,000-meter peak in a little explored part of the range. So congratulations to all these grant winners. We wish them safe climbs and great success. We'll hear more about Chris and Graham's Lynx R plans toward the end of this episode. But for now, our focus is their new route on Mount McDonald in the Selkirks of British Columbia. This is a mountain with some unusual barriers to winter climbing, and their successful ascent in mid-November was a story of patience, creativity, and some bold climbing. Let's get right to it. Graham and Chris, welcome to The Cutting Edge. Uh, why don't you each introduce yourselves and maybe let us know what you do for a living and so people know who they're hearing when they're listening. Sure. Uh, my name is Chris Wright. Uh, I work as a mountain guide, um, both here in the Pacific Northwest and uh, near my home in Bend, Oregon, and elsewhere where I um, spend a lot of time um, in various mountains in the Alps and in Norway and kind of all over. And Graham? And my name is Graham Zimmerman. Um, I'm based here in Bend, Oregon, where I do a lot of things. And I guess predominantly I work as a climbing athlete and I run a film production company that's focused in creating story-driven content, much of which is uh, based in the outdoor industry. And what's the name of that company? My company is called Bedrock Filmworks. Right. Oh, and Chris, what's your guide service called? Uh, my guide service is called Now Climbing. 
But we do right. go skiing sometimes and snowboarding as well. <laughs> but the, the, the short of it is there were two alpinists based in central Oregon where there are mostly low angle mountains, which is kind of funny. <laughs> All right. So I doubt many people, many Americans at least, have even heard of Mount McDonald, the peak we're talking about today. So let's start with one of you telling us a little bit about where it is and what it looks like and why you were attracted to this line you climbed in November. I'm, just, I'm going to pass that off to Chris because I had never actually been to Rogers Pass until we went up there. So he's he's the one who had all the inspiration for this one. I'm not sure I even knew that or I've just forgotten. But um, So Mount McDonald is uh, part of the, um, the Selkirk Mountains up by Rogers Pass in British Columbia. Rogers Pass is mostly on skiers' radars because it's one of the best human-powered ski touring venues in the world. And though... Um, nearby Mount Sir Donald is one of the 50 classic climbs. Um, people don't really go there to climb, or at least Americans don't, but um, I had um, spent quite a few years skiing up there because one of my <clears throat> best friends lives in Revelstoke, and um, as a mountain guide, I'd done some you know guides training and exams and stuff up there, and every time I would go, I would see this thing because it sits right above the highway and it has this really beautiful kind of banded quartzite face it's got like a beautiful kind of triangle shape it's 3,000 feet long and um, after the first time I went up there you you see it looming above you and I thought man that would be really cool to climb and it's got this really obvious corner system with a beautiful drip coming down and um, so I thought for years that it'd be cool to climb it but Um, didn't really know that much about what it would take to actually do it. And when I started looking into it, realized that it was kind of complicated um, because of the whole winter permit and closure system with the avalanche control for the highways. And so every year for the last handful of years, I would sort of allot some time thinking, oh, it'd be cool to go up and climb it. And things never came together until this year. Right. So it's a north face. Is that right? It is. It's a north face. Yep. And there, there were summer lines up this face, right? I mean, there, the face had been climbed before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm actually, not, I don't remember uh, who the first ascensionists were. I know there's a Becky route on it from the 60s, of course. And um, and more recently, uh, John Walsh had been uh, motivated to put up a few different routes on the North Face, which are all kind of long, hard rock routes. And so I knew from his reports that the rock was supposed to be really good. And friends have climbed uh, one of the classic ridge routes, which I think is like a, a long, fun kind of wandery 510 and told me that it was really good. So uh, what kind of rock is it? Quartzite. Almost everything up there is quartzite. So Mount Sir Donald is quartzite. MacDonald is quartzite. And the peaks across the highway, Mount Tupper and Hermit, uh, or quartzite as well. And if you go farther into the north uh, Selkirks, you end up in um, in granite because the adamant group, for example, is not that far away. And to the mm-hmm. south, you get back into granite with the bugaboos. But um, yeah, it's just this beautiful, uh, steppy alpine quartzite, similar to what you find in the northern part of the Rockies. Right. I'm sort of getting ahead of myself, but does that make for good uh, dry tooling when you're up there doing the mixed pitches? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was... 
Yes and no, actually. The rock is really, really high quality and similar to a lot of quartzite is, you know, really blocky. So we actually did find a lot of gear in a lot on a lot of the route and really excellent climbing. Um, the irony was, of course, that where the drip was supposed to be, in many cases, it wasn't. So instead, you just had absolutely bulletproof water polished rock with no features or gear whatsoever. Oh, right. <laughs> So you, you mentioned, okay, that um, that the, the, the access to this is difficult, that it's often closed because of avalanche control when you need to, when you would want to actually try to do a winter ascent. So why don't you tell us what the deal was with why this thing was so hard to access and why it hadn't been climbed before? Okay, so basically up until, um, I think I might be getting the history wrong here, but up until the 90s, um, there was somewhat limited access to the ski area around skiing around Rogers Pass because um, so many of the avalanche paths there threatened both the highway and the railroad that you just weren't allowed to go into them. They were permanently closed. And so at some point, again, I believe it was the late 90s, they set up this kind of complicated permit system where every day if you want to go up there to ski – you have to go to the uh, visitor center or check in online and find out which areas are open. And some are always open. Um, some are permanently closed. And um, you don't find out which of the um, daily open and closed areas are accessible until like 7 o'clock in the morning. And then they close down again at night. And so for most of the winter, this system's in place that just doesn't allow overnight use in the particular area that uh, McDonald is in. And there's no way you're going to climb it in a day. So that basically means that you're trying to do a winter style route in the conditions that you're going to find in winter, but you can't do it in actual winter because as soon as there's enough snow to cause avalanche issues, then this permit system goes into place and it's completely um, impossible. And so I had asked the park years ago, like, hey, do you think that we could make an exception? And they were extremely nice about it and basically said, no, but have you tried climbing it uh, outside of the permit closures uh, yet? And I said, no. And they said, well, you should try that. And if that doesn't work, then maybe we can talk about making an exception. And because we're Canadians and incredibly friendly we'll send you photos whenever you want because it's right outside the visitor center and give you conditions reports and tell you when we think the closure is going to start and end. And uh, so I'd been checking in with them the last few years and uh, it had never lined up to have the route be in, have time off, have a partner, and most importantly to get the weather because November in British Columbia is, you know, not a very like, nice time of year to be outside and usually by the end of the month when high pressures start to kind of come back from the midwinter the closure is already in place and it's off limits wow and, and was this uh was this always a, a right zimmerman enterprise or had you looked at it with other partners or had you attempted it before this 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 year no, I hadn't attempted it at all. I had certainly tried to convince a bunch of people that it was a good idea, um, including some friends who had skied up there as well. Um, and I'm not sure that I ever really had any success in convincing any of them, nor do I really, am I really sure that I had success in convincing Graham until this year. But um, 
this was definitely the first time that everything came together to make it actually seem possible. So was it kind of a smash and grab sort of thing where you got word of a good window and the conditions and just had to go right then? Yeah, pretty much. Um, we, I had gotten photos earlier this year and the route didn't look as good as I'd seen it before, but it looked doable. And Graham and I had uh, some time blocked out on our calendars for let's go alpine climbing with the idea that this was what we really wanted to do, or at least what I really wanted to do. And I think Graham was actually pretty convinced because <laughs> we talked about it last year too. And um, it was kind of funny how it came together because Graham had been climbing in uh, in Montana and kind of half convinced me that we should go there. Conditions on uh, some of the steeper routes on Hood were looking pretty good, but I wasn't really um, paying attention because I was trying to finish a rock project at Smith, and I basically finished <laughs> that, took a day off. Um, Graham congratulated me on finishing, but was really just stoked that I was going to stop thinking about that and could start thinking about going alpine climbing, check the forecast. And to our surprise, you know, there was the perfect window. I asked the park for more pictures and the route looked not perfect, but doable. And I think I sent Graham a text saying, Hey, I think we should get in the car and drive North tomorrow. And he said, cool. I was thinking the same thing. So we did. I mean, Chris had been talking about this this route for a couple of years, and I had consistently just seen huge snowpacks and knew it was a ski area that got tons of snow and was pretty, uh, you know, kind of uh, kind of skittish about it because of that. But when when these conditions came through, that the avalanche forecast was very stable and the weather was looking great, it was like great. We jumped jumped in the car. I think on a Thursday. Uh, drove all the way and then checked out, spent a day checking out the route, kind of drove up to the pass, uh, you know, got out, got out a camera with a long lens on it, took a bunch of photos, determined that if yes, in fact, it was in good shape or appeared, you know, appeared to be in good shape. The snow conditions did in fact look fairly stable and packed up our stuff and launched early the next morning. So you, you're, you've, you've spent a day scoping it out, pack up, and then, uh, you know, why don't you walk us through it? How did the, how did the climb go? Um, uh, do you start really early in the morning or did you know you were going to have a short day that first day or how did it go? Well, we started, so we started really early. Um, we, we went for the proper Alpine start. Um, uh, I will happily give Chris credit for bashing up the lower snow fields. I was, I was coming off of a knee injury and hadn't really been exercising a whole heck of a lot. So <laughs> Chris gets all the credit for dealing with all the all the shitty snow down low that was was stable but still was a lot of a lot of uh kicking of steps. So it took us it took us a few hours to climb up to where the the real climbing actually started and um you know the climbing uh we certainly had a lot of snow on the route um while it was safe avalanche conditions and it was early in the season um it was still there was still a lot of dry rock covered in snow. And, and the first, uh, really, I mean, realistically, the first day of climbing, or the first, certainly the first block of climbing was all just kind of clearing, clearing fairly steep terrain, probably in the like M4 to M5 range, and climbing up really high quality rock that protected well. And, I, you know, it was pretty delightful, actually. The, the climbing was, was very good. And 
Um, while it was time consuming, it wasn't, wasn't super fast just because there was a lot of digging and clearing. Um, we were having, we were having a lot of fun and the weather was really good. Now it's, it is important to note that looking at the weather and looking at, uh, how big the face was and that kind of thing, we had determined that we should bring two days of food with a little bit of extra. And it was, I think it was clear pretty early on the climbing was not going as quickly as we had hoped and that we might be spending more time out there than anticipated. But it was, you know, it's one of those interesting things about dialed partnerships and just kind of having both of us having spent a lot of time in the mountains, you just kind of keep forging forward, knowing that if you're going to get a little hungry at the end, that's going to be okay. Um, that's really not, that's not something that's dangerous necessarily and not a reason to go down. So we just kind of kept, kept forging upwards in these kind of slow climbing conditions. And it was, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was great. And you had planned a bivy at least once, right? Yes. Yeah. We, we planned a bivy once on the route. So we brought a tent and two light sleeping bags and a bit of food. And were you guys carrying the same size packs or was there a leader pack or how did you, we had, we had, we both had the same size pack and I don't know how much do you think they weighed, Chris? Like, I don't know, 25 pounds or something like that. Yeah, maybe 25 or 30. We, we went we went pretty heavy on the rack, which I think is what uh, made us want to go light on the food because we weren't that <laughs> sure what we were going to find for, for gear. And, you know, we'd been told that the quartzite could be really compact. So, you know, we kind of had a double rack. I think we had a four. We had like um, a bunch of pitons and whatnot. And the irony is that I <clears throat> had definitely always thought that it was going to take two bivvies. And I don't know how we convinced ourselves that it wasn't. And then, of course, when we got up there, that pretty quickly became obvious that it was. Um, right. But it worked out. <laughs> yeah, spoiler, spoiler and, alert, it took us two bivvies. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then did you did you reach that, that sort of beautiful ice streak that you were aiming for all along on that first day? Or did that come later? No, that was day two. So, so Graham kind of got us up through... Um, a lot of the, the climbing on day one, and then um, I took over, and Graham got a lot of snow-covered uh, rock, and then as I took over in the dark, I think we got into more, like, it was this interesting neve that I think it just sort of formed from a lot of spin drift, kind of buffing everything out, and was really good climbing, but um, very poorly protected and ended in a, a massive... Um, massive snow ledge which was always part of the plan that one of the saving graces seemed like with you know kind of the terrace nature of the climbing we'd be able to find good bivvies so we kind of climbed into the night on day one and then we had these you know super light little shovels and could just dig out a super comfy um bivy and uh then i think graham did you take us over yeah i think you took over again in the morning of day two yeah um so i you know i uh I mean, the, the Rochambeau for whoever started, I guess, was established at the start of the route, but I certainly uh, made out pretty well by, uh, you know, after just a small, small amount of mixed climbing, was able to move into the the ice hose, if you will, which um, for a few t- few pitches turned out to be ap- like really great uh, ice climbing. I mean, it was it was thin and it had it had kind of some of the alpine elements of of not protecting particularly well and having some steep, thin bits that, you know, kind of had to finesse, but, but generally speaking, it was about, it was about as good as ice climbing 
in, in, you know, in the bigger mountains gets, it was, it was really, really delightful. And, uh, and you know, we had, I think we had a total of, I think it was like a pitch and a third of real ice climbing. And then Chris took over as we got up into the second part of the hose, which we were looking up at and hoped would also be similar ice, but I will let Chris describe, uh, what that ended up being. <laughs> Wait, so, up being like. so this whole thing that you've been looking at for years and years, Chris, turns out to be a pitch and a third of ice. Uh, yeah. And in retrospect, I mean, I know that sounds silly, but yes. And I think that uh, when it was all told, the route was, what was it, Graham? It was like, I can't remember. Was it 23 or 26 pitches? I think it was, I think it was 23. Yeah. And, and like <laughs> one and a third was the actual <laughs> ice route. Um, <laughs> Which is, which is classic. I mean, I feel like we get suckered into like, oh my God, there's this amazing line. Look at the sick ice. And then, you know, you just kind of dutifully ignore the, you know, thousands of feet of mixed climbing above and below that, you know, that beautiful line of ice. And that, that this was absolutely an example of that. It would not helped by the fact that, uh, that the, the second part of the ice hose turned out to be, um, uh, not not an ice hose <laughs> yeah i got into a part which we really didn't think was going to be the crux of the route at all because it looked so climbable but it turned out to be this again like broad water groove with just patches of delaminated ice stuck to it and because the spin drift would come down so much um the snow had sort of like filled in the spaces between the ice but it was completely worthless to climb it was like a knock on it would you know, pull it all off. And so I got to take over and do um, a couple of mixed pitches, which turned out to be the crux of the route. And um, we're basically climbing up one side of the water groove where the rock was more featured and then uh, going for a fairly harrowing traverse across the water groove and then back across on the next pitch and up the uh, side again. And one of those pitches was like the classic, um, you know, go up and down for a while before figuring out the, the move is pull your glove off and stick your hand in the hand jam and then kind of mantle up on the slopey thing and then hook on the who knows what and um, lots of like sugary snow in your face kind of thing. And it just, I think even at the time it seemed like a, huh, no shit. How come I ended up with this kind of moment? But, uh, and how many pitches of that was there before you got to another break? There were two pitches of probably like solid M6 or M7. It's really hard to say, I guess, but then it gave way to, I think, uh, like some snow wallowing and then a big snowy traverse on a ledge that we, um, that was actually where we thought the crux was going to be because it looked like the ice blanked out above that. And we got to this kind of head wall after those two hard pitches where we thought, okay, we can see there's not much ice or at least it doesn't connect uh, and maybe we'll find a crack system we can aid through, or that might be the crux of the route. But it turned out that it was like a completely um, blank, massive cave with no crack systems through it. But it was the sort of thing that if you had like found in the woods somewhere, you'd be like, oh, sweet, this is where we'll bolt the M10s. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and there was like no way we were getting through it, especially because it didn't lead to um, 
anything climbable. It was just like a whole nother system of the same delaminated junk that, uh, um, okay. that we had been on. So that was where we kind of took the dog leg left. And then, right. You look at the photos of your route and it's got this kind of crazy zig back to the left and then up a little ways and then back to the right. Uh, it, it, do you think that that section that you weren't able to climb straight up, straight up is, uh, would that ever come in with, with, uh, you know, a flow of ice, do you think, or is it just something that's not likely to ever be in good shape? You know, that's the part that in all of the pictures, I'd actually have to look back at all the photos I've taken over the years. That's the part that I always thought didn't look like it came in. And I could never quite tell if it was hidden behind some corner that I wasn't seeing. But now having been there, I think the ice above it, I've probably seen in, but that actual, um, the, for there to be ice continuing down to the cave, it would have to be like a 30 meter freestanding pillar. So right. like you could find your way through it if you went, you know, if you had probably a big wall rack and more patience than I do, but. Um, I don't think you're ever going to go ice climbing up that per se. Hmm. What do you think, Graham? Is that wrong? Oh, no, I don't, I don't think that's wrong at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think with alpine climbing, um, I think Chris would attest to this as well. Lots of times when we're looking up at a new alpine route like this, there are oftentimes these question marks that, you know, we, we can't really define from the ground how they're going to go. And it's interesting in the mountains. Most of the time is, as you get closer to a feature, it kind of opens up and you're able to see more detail. And more often than not, you're able to see a way to get through it. Sometimes it's really hard climbing. Um, sometimes it's actually quite easy, but most of the time you're able to find a path. And when we pulled up into that cave, um, you know, just above the crux on, on the route on Mount McDonald, it was abundantly obvious that all of the features that we had been seeing that we had been hoping would kind of open up into, you know, a good available climbing that we might be able to aid climb up or whatever. They, uh, they, it was not possible. Okay. So it was, it was, when we got there, it was, it was a very short discussion of, should we try to get through this? No, no, we should go left. <laughs> okay. And it's funny uh, too, cause I took a bunch of photos of it and now I look at them like, gosh, could we have, and I have to sort of slap myself on the wrist. It's like, no, that was, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you moved left, what, on a big ledge and joined, I guess you joined or came near the old Becky route, right? Yeah, it was really interesting because the terrain to our left looked very steep, but we knew that Becky had climbed in that area at 5'7", um, which is always kind of curious when you're like, it's, you know, it's winter conditions. There's a route somewhere in this area that somebody called five, seven. And I think it was like 1963 when you put that route up. So, you know, it's kind of like, it's not, it's not a lot of information to go on. Uh, <laughs> but we basically went out to this arete to the left and just kind of started up a series of crack systems out there. And it was very, very blocky climbing. It was climbing that protected really well. Um, it was actually like very fun climbing. We started had, having a lot of moss show up that was really well frozen. So we had some really excellent moss sticks. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Which is, there's like, there's nothing quite like the joy of hitting a good mossy section while up <laughs> exactly. on a mixed route. It's like kind of, it's like one of the small joys. And, um, 
And, and, and did you always have this in mind? Like, was this always kind of a fallback plan if that section didn't pan out? Absolutely. I mean, you know, with a route like this, you have to know where your potential options are. And that's that's a big part of doing the research, both on what's been done before and spending a lot of time glassing the route. Um, you know, part of what you're doing is making sure that things look safe and there's nothing above you that could fall down and kill you, but also just kind of like, okay, like we have this question mark, we're going to try to get through it. If we can't, we of course can repel, but that's not what we want to do. And how, you know, what else, what else is possible? And there was clearly a snow ledge there. And we knew that there was this, this Becky route out to the left that was a fairly moderate route. So even, you know, whether or not we actually got on the Becky route, and which I, I honestly don't know that we know if we did, we were somewhere near it. Um, but, uh, you know, we knew that we'd be able to, 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 you know, if there, if there's five, seven in the area, then we're going to be able to get up the hill. It's kind of that slow haggling uphill in, in the dark. Um, once again, clearing off lots of snow, but it all, it all worked out. And then it was, it was really cool. Um, because there was snow on the route as we've talked about, um, but there wasn't tons of snow, which meant that all of these areas that normally fill in with these big snow cones and maybe kind of fill in these caves behind them uh, would just be these partially formed snow cones that would be like sitting in these caves. So we could just kind of hack off the top of these snow cones and then dig back into the cave and flat it out. And we had these amazing bivy platforms that didn't actually take that much work to create. I was interested to hear you say earlier that, or one of you said that... Um you brought two super light shovels um, and that first of all, bringing two shovels was interesting, but were there other kind of gear choices like that, that you thought worked out really well or poorly, uh, you know, that may have been a mistake in the end or, or maybe things you didn't bring that you wish you had for this route? Um, <clears throat> I'm just going to hop in on that for a second. Um, so for one, I just looked through some pictures. No, there was never any more ice, at least in the last few years worth of photos that I could find. <laughs> I think I just glossed over that in my mind. Um, but, uh, the ultralight shovels were because we knew that we were going into terrain, both on the approach and the descent that were just really, really serious pieces of avalanche terrain where generally speaking, oh, you right. wouldn't want to go at all. And as we were <clears throat> finishing the descent, you're kind of walking down like God's own avalanche path. And so even though we felt like we had um, a pretty good handle on the snowpack and felt like these were reasonable places to be given the um, conditions, we still thought it was prudent to take avalanche gear. And, and that's often the case for uh, my work guiding ice in Canada. So I have two sets of really slinky light um you know beacons shovels and probes so we took those knowing that they would probably be far more useful for digging bivvies than having to try to dig through avalanche uh debris which definitely proved to be the case i mean we didn't obviously have to try to dig through avalanche debris but i think the shovels would probably just break looking at any kind of stiff snow but they're perfect for digging um bivy platforms and soft snow Chris and I, both in Pakistan and Alaska, have actually been carrying a single ultralight shovel um, because it makes digging platforms in snowy conditions so much more efficient. Um, it's it's kind of turned into something that um, I guess I've, I've, got, I've done this in Canada as well, climbing in the Rockies. That yeah, it's it just can make digging a platform to sleep on really really easy and 
you know, these days with modern ice tools are, are, you know, our ads is, are pretty small and our picks are really aggressive and having an ultralight shovel that, you know, weighs like weighs less than a pound, uh, can make a really big difference in your efficiency of how quickly you're actually able to get to sleep. You said you brought super light sleeping bags. I mean, were they comfortable at night or was it a big compromise for, you know, pack weight versus actually actually warmth when you were sleeping? <laughs> I'm chuckling here because I brought the same sleeping bag I, I often bring on big climbs, which is like an overstuffed, uh, lightweight feathered friends. And I brought um, a big down jacket and uh, puffy pants and down booties. And it's a sleeping system I've used um, in a lot of different places. And I know it keeps me warm. Wow. And, that's a lot. Uh, yeah. Down booties. A lot. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I take the down socks, just the inner booties out because I feel like on big climbs, um, a, I've just frozen my feet too many times, but um, if I don't take them, I know my feet are going to freeze and they don't really like weigh anything. Uh, I mean, I don't take the outer part. You can't walk around in them, but um, fresh socks and down booties are key for me, especially since it's a pretty darn light sleeping bag. I mean, I think the, what's the Vario rated to Graham, like 30 degrees or something oh, like that. 98.6 degrees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I say I'm laughing because Graham did not have a very warm sleeping system and was not nearly as psyched as no, I was. No, I was like, te- I, was, ah. I was testing kind of like lightening things up and it didn't pay off very well. <laughs> uh, right, right. Um, which which was fine. Good thing. Uh, Chris is a very uh, nice little warm body to snuggle. So all was well. So, all right. So day three, you wake up on this nice platform and head back into the main line, right? And then And then up from there? Yeah, exactly. So I started us off on day three and um, traversed hard back right, um, kind of plugged right back into that big corner system and started off with uh, a really cool pitch of ice and mix climbing in a corner um, where the the ice was actually pretty good. There was a lot of snow clearing, but it was a really cool pitch and um, ended up with a another kind of <clears throat> like semi-technical snow field. And we kind of had a debate at that point about which way was the most expedient to the summit. We knew that we had weather coming in and we wanted to figure out how to get to the top, but it was kind of unclear at that point which direction was the top. And so we kind of had a moment of debate. And since it was my block, I decided to go right, which looked like moderate climbing and a direct way to the summit. And, um, it turned out to be an awesome pitch again of like really cool uh, movement of mixed climbing that was, you know, really well protected for that style um, because you could place like a little triple zero, you know, like that little silver C3 in, uh, in the cracks and the rock so solid, it felt great. And um, that took us up to um, a big corner and we, we felt like we were getting close and then I climbed one more pitch with kind of a your classic obligatory steep wallow slash overhead tunnel slash I'm not having a good time to get through the cornice at the top. And um, kind of to both of our surprise, I think we like plopped out on the summit ridge, like 100 meters walk from the actual tippy top, which we got to in like beautiful sunshine around noon on uh 
on that third day. And I had said to Graham, like, man, I know you haven't been here. If you look around on a clear day, if it is clear when we get to the top, you'll be blown away because you can see the Rockies out to the east and like the whole Selkirks and Purcells and Bugaboos and the Dawson Range stretching to the south. And then like, it just feels like there's 200 miles of wild mountains either direction. And like, they were all out when we got up there. It was pretty cool. And you got there up around noon. How long did it take you to get down? And I assume you didn't go down the same way. You went down uh, an easier route. Yeah, we had uh, gotten um, beta that the descent route was to go down the southwest ridge um, until you could wrap into a couloir. And then that couloir takes you into that massive slide path, uh, which I think is called the crossover slide path. Uh, we found an easy crossing across the river, walk like a K or two back along the highway and uh, back to the car. And I think, I think we were back down in town at like seven or something like that. Yeah, we made it back in time for dinner. Right. And I, one thing I was curious about was how soon, and you may not know, but how soon after this climb did the road closures or the, uh, the avalanche closures begin in the area? Well, so the, uh, the, uh, this guy, Percy Woods at Parks Canada, who is in like visitor safety for, um, Revelstoke and Glacier National Parks had been my, my contact. And he told me before we went that it wasn't going to go into place, I think until the, the 17th, I want to say. And I can't remember what days we were up there, but I think we had like a week before he said it was going to go into place. And then, um, the best part was that when we woke up the next day uh, in Revy, it was like dumping just nasty, wet, pukey snow, and we drove home through a snowstorm. So <laughs> it was like the best confirmation that, yep, I think you guys got the window. Yeah, perfect. Um, I wanted to spend a few minutes just uh, talking to you a little bit about your partnership. I mean, you mentioned having a, somebody mentioned having a real dialed partnership. When did you guys actually start climbing together? Well, uh, let's see. I, so Chris has been living in Bend for like 12 years now, Chris, is that right? Uh, 13 or 14. 13. Actually. Chris has been living in Bend for like 14 years and my now wife and I moved down to Bend about four years ago. And at the time, Chris, Chris and I knew each other, certainly not well, um, but we knew who each other were because of the, you know, the climbing community and the Alpine climbing community, it's pretty small. So when we were moving down, it was like, Hey, Chris, you know, we've met a couple of times. Um, I'm looking for somewhere to live for a while while we kind of get our, get our scene figured out. And I'm wondering if you know anybody who's renting a room and Chris's response was, well, I am, you should move in with me. And we, you know, so we obviously spent a lot of time sitting around talking about climbing. We had both spent, you know, a long time, like a decade of time each climbing in the, in the greater ranges and, uh, decided that we should probably go on a trip together. And that was, uh, what turned into our first trip to the Wrangell St. Elias to climb the, um, uh, west face of Salino Peak. <clears throat> and that was what, like, uh, three years ago now. And, um, and so, so that was, you know, that was kind of like, you know, we, we basically fell into each other's scenes and then went on a trip that went exceptionally well. And we also happened to get along very well. And I think we also really have a similar sense of 
finding balance between safety and success. And that's, you know, that's super important, right? Is, is we're both, we're both very invested in finding, you know, modern technical big roots in the greater ranges and going to climb them in such a way where our, where our margins are stacked uh, for survival. And that's, you know, that's a really hard thing. Like partnership is a really, is a really challenging thing to figure out um, in this, in this game. And, and Chris and I, you know, over, you know, I guess, really three or four years of climbing together um, now and going on trips to Alaska and to Canada and to Pakistan and continuing to plan trips to the greater ranges for the next, you know, looking, looking ahead to the next few years. Um, you know, we've really, we've really found that we're, we're dialed in in terms of how we, how we approach this stuff and what it means to us. And, and we both, we both bring different strengths to the table and, and we can sit around in a tent for, you know, months at a time, which is probably the most important part. And, uh, yeah, it's been it's been super super positive. Yeah, Chris, do you do you think that there are, that your strengths are complementary? Chris, you're also perfectly lined us up. Say, Graham's just the only alpinist in town. I think he's a real <laughs> dick, and I would much rather somebody else live here. <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, I was. Uh, you want me to say that? You, you, you uh, didn't sound very convincing. No, actually. I was. I was. <laughs> I'll say it if you want. No, um, I I was going to say it was funny because Graham and I had climbed once like on sport climbing together um, it, like years ago because we used to ha- or we still do have a mutual friend, uh, Mark Allen, who lives up in uh, the Metau in Washington. And then that was kind of funny. But then what we realized, I think, when we went to Salino was that actually we'd never done anything multi-pitch together at all. I don't think we even multi-pitched at Smith before that. <laughs> Um, I think we'd just gone sport climbing and drank a lot of coffee together. Um, but I think in terms of the strengths, yeah, you know, it's, it's not that one of us is a, a rock specialist or an ice specialist. I mean, I think when it comes down to, um, like the actual climbing, we're both, we're both, I would say we're both pretty much generalists. Um, but I think we have kind of a shared, kind of bank of experience in the Alpine and, and more than our skill sets complementing each other. I think we feel like we can see eye to eye and and trust each other, which is maybe um, another way that that works. And I think maybe if you find a contrast in our skill sets, it's maybe in um, more in the expedition planning or or something else in that Graham's like an excellent logistician and um is a perennial optimist and is I think just good at a bunch of things where maybe I don't see myself as you know the cameraman or the guy who's going to do the best job of keeping the list of this or that but um I feel like we kind of contribute in different ways that it neither of us really think that much about that stuff and uh things just seem to to, to get off in an organized way that seems to work. And, and I'll try, I'll try in to say that on, on this particular climb, I think one of the biggest challenges with understanding snowpacks and understanding, you know, when, when a face like that would be safe. And, and I, I spend a lot of time trying to climb in ranges where snow is not a huge issue, you know, climbing in a place like Pakistan, um, you know, snow is certainly dangerous, but it's not a super snowy range. It's a place where, you can climb on uh, on convexities, and you can stay away from dangerous dangerous snow a lot of the time. 
And my knowledge of, you know, of dealing with bad snow conditions is, uh, is basically like my attitude is if I'm concerned at all, I'm probably just going to stay away because I don't, my comprehension isn't super great. And I know it's something that is super dangerous. Whereas Chris has a very, very dialed in knowledge as a, as a avalanche uh, professional and mountain guide of how to deal with snowpacks and how to make a judgment call. So there was actually an example on uh, Mount, Mount McDonald where we were wrapping into this feature that I think was called the banana cooler on the descent. And it was like kind of the last repel we had to make before we were able to just kind of start tr- just walking down this cooler and then, and then uh, walking, walking kind of out this base and down the cross, uh, is it crossover slide path? And I was like, Chris, I need you to go first because you're going to be able to get into this cooler and say, you know, whether or not this is safe. And I will go down there and I will have to make a decision because I'll be down there, but I'll be scared and I won't have a ton of confidence, whereas I think you can. And it was awesome. Be able to send Chris down there and have him jump around while on a rope and say, oh, yeah, dude, no problem. We're all set. You know, it's like this, there's, there's so much more that goes into alpine climbing and alpine climbing safely, particularly when you get at these bigger objectives. And uh, and I think we both we both bring a lot to the table and and make a pretty, pretty strong, strong team. And, and and speaking of big objectives, are you you're going back to the Karakoram this summer, right? Uh, yeah. So if the Pakistani Secret Service will be kind enough to grant us another permit to Linksar, which we have uh, indicators that they will, um, and then we are going to go back and try to try to make the first ascent of Linksar via its east face, which we. Really, really had a had a good good schwack at in 2017, but the weather that year was dismal. It was like, you know, Shelton esque. I think uh, I think we had like two or three weather windows that were two days long, and that's just really not enough to climb what what amounts to a 10,000 foot alpine face. So, um, so, and we really figured out we figured out all the root finding cruxes and all that, and basically got into the last 3000 feet of climbing on the thing. And, uh, we're just hoping that this year we can get that permit and get like a five day weather window and give it hell and, you know, wrap up. And this is with, uh, with, with Steve Swenson again. Yes. Yeah. Once again with Steve Swenson and then, uh, this time with Mark Ritchie, um, which is, which party of four. Yeah. Which is, which is really interesting. Um, in the sense of, uh, talking about strengths and weaknesses and things like that. Swenson, um, I think it's going to be 65 on this expedition. Right. Generally speaking, it seems a little weird that, you know, two guys who are in their early to mid thirties would go on an expedition to try like really challenging big new mountain routes with somebody who is literally twice their age. And the fact of the matter is that people like these guys, like Mark and Steve, they train super hard. Steve in particular is, uh, you know, he's retired these days. So like all he does is train. I mean, if I, if only we had that much time to actually put into training. Um, and he brings so much, like he may mean that we go like 15% slower on the crux pitches in terms of like how fast he seconds them. But he's the guy who, when your porters are, um, you know, are saying they're not going to walk any further up the valley, and you're sitting there yelling at them, unsure of what to do. He just like walks in with, you know, knowledge and finesse and just deals with the situation and has everybody walking uphill and happy like 10 minutes later. And, you know, he knows how to, he can look at a mountain face like the East Face of Lynx are, which is a pretty intimidating 
piece of mountain real estate and he could break it down into the pieces that, you know, so that you're kind of eating the elephant one piece at a time. And he knows how to do that super effectively. Um, so he, I mean, somebody like that brings so much to a team, both in terms of potential success and once again, staying safe so that combining Chris and I's skill sets with the, his skill set and Mark's skill set really means that maybe we won't climb the route, you know, quite as fast as we might otherwise, but our chance of actual success, success being both getting to the top and surviving, I think is dramatically increased. When do, when do you fly out? If Assuming you get your permit. Inshallah, June, what, 8th or 10th? Or yeah, we're talk, talking about the first, first couple of weeks of June heading out. Great. Well, good luck and uh, look forward to hearing about it. Yeah, hopefully we get to chat about sending links out here in a couple of months. I hope so. That would be great. <laughs> Thanks a lot to both of you guys for uh, spending time this afternoon. Yeah. Thanks to you, Dougal. That was fun. I love getting to talk about mountains. As I mentioned at the top, Chris and Graham's 2019 trip to the Karakoram is partly supported by a cutting-edge grant from the American Alpine Club. You can learn more about all the AAC climbing, research, and conservation grants, totaling more than $150,000 a year, by visiting AmericanAlpineClub.org slash grants. Thanks a ton to these guys for coming on the show at the last minute this month. And thanks to Hilleberg the Tentmaker for making this podcast possible. Learn more about their bomb-proof tents at hilleberg.com. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs.